This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 13, Episode 52. This is Writing Excuses. Working Dad is a spaceman. Fifteen minutes long, because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Howard. I'm Mary. I'm Dan. And we are joined by Tom Marshburn. Tom, you, this is your second episode recording with us. I think that's the order these will air in, but we can't promise that. <laughs> but a couple of words about yourself. Uh, I am a, uh, an astronaut selected in 2004. I was a flight surgeon uh, prior to that time, I was an ER doc and ended up working, taking care of astronauts at NASA, and then had a chance to become an astronaut, had a chance to fly in space a couple of times. And if I understand this correctly, you're also a parent. That's right. I've now now 14-year-old uh, daughter, hard to believe. And uh, yeah, it's been, that's been the most amazing adventure, I would say, of all by far. How old was she when you went into space? First time she was eight years old. Oh, wow. Which she, uh, she barely remembers, the, the rocket launch <laughs> from that time, partly because we had six scrubs of our launch before climbing into the space shuttle. And in the morning of the launch, I think she might have even asked, um, what time is the scrub today? <laughs> and, and then just minutes before the main engines were to start, she, both she and my wife went, oh, this is really going to happen now. And they ran outside onto the uh, it's like a Philip Balcony. K. Dick story where it's like, yeah, sure, Dad's in space. Yeah, I know. You've yeah. told me this before. Exactly. One of the things that, that uh, I was excited about when we were, we were talking about possible topics was, um, was, was the idea of, of talking about how being a dad in this, this job has, has, uh, has changed your, your relationship with your family. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to briefly tell a, a funny story that I think will highlight kind of some of the things. Uh, a friend of mine's a runner. And uh, one of the people in his, his running group that he'd run with for years, um, he, she was trying to date something. And she's like, yeah, um, that, was, uh, that was right after my dad came back from the moon. And he just stopped. He's like, which he, they never do when they're running. And, and he's like, wait, wait, what, what, what? And she realized that she had never told him that her dad was one of the Apollo astronauts because she was so used to masking it that she just said, my dad's a pilot, because she got tired of the fact that the moment she said her dad was an astronaut and an Apollo astronaut, that was the only thing anyone wanted to talk about. <laughs> what has being an astronaut done for that? Like, has that put additional pressures on, on your daughter? Or? I think so, but I think she's embraced it. It's, it's difficult being away from the family, but there are a lot of benefits that come to the family uh, being away, at least in our experience. Uh, so similar thing in school today, even my daughter's in high school, and if it's space day, they're talking about space, and the teacher will ask a question, and my daughter usually just has the answer right away in much greater detail than the teacher ever intended. <laughs> and so oftentimes, how do, you, how do you know that? And so she would say, well, my father's an astronaut, so... I think she kind of actually enjoys that a little bit. She, she loves yeah, it. She'll get actually, tired of it later. Miss So and So, you're asking the question wrong. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, and and I can understand that coming from you know a different kind of celebrity. My children, I've got six, and they, you know, they they have this strange relationship with a father who is uh, an author, 
my daughter, my my oldest, she's 16, and I don't think she will ever read a Brandon Sanderson book because she loves being able to say, oh yeah, I've been to Brandon's house, I know him really well, but I've never read his books because it drives her friends nuts. That kind of, <laughs> oh, just casual relationship with this famous person. <laughs> oh yeah, she, she loves doing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. She, you, so your your daughter kind of drops that whenever she can. Well, she, oh yeah, my dad, the astronaut. <laughs> so we, uh, when I was training for my long duration space flight, so that's two and a half years, about about half the time spent away from the family. I said, all right, break the bank. I'm just going to bring my family with me. NASA didn't pay for it, but I brought the family with me a lot of my training trips, and we pulled her out of school, withdrew her. So we sort of homeschooled, but the places we did it were very unique, and she loves to talk about it still. Um, she, in the basement of a little cottage in uh, Star City, uh, which is where we train outside of Moscow for the Russian, for to fly in the Soyuz, is where she learned to play piano. Oh, wow. She, just, she was bored. She downloaded it on her iPad and just learned to play piano. Um, she learned uh, long division in a Japanese restaurant. And um, she, she actually, uh, we all wrote down little problems for her while we were eating dinner, and she solved them, brought them back. But we wrote them on beer coasters. And so she turned in this big stack of beer coasters to her teacher with all the, <laughs> the problems solved on there. I said, that's one thing maybe we shouldn't have done. But uh, she's, she's done fine in school. But So we have all these great stories of, of the family traveling with me during, during training. And, and so you said two and a half years of training and, is that, and that you took them with you for much of it. But there were times that you couldn't take them. Yeah, and I wouldn't even say much of it for, for each country, one trip there. Much, much of the time I was away, yeah. Oh. Just gone. And how did you manage uh, staying in touch with family? Like, was that, you know, now we now we have uh, email and, and Skype and things like yeah. that. Were you doing lots of that or? Yeah, that was still available um, then. So we had iPads and we would Skype. Uh, I think the lesson learned from that is, you know, how often do you have a set time where your family members are sitting across the table staring in their face and just talking? You don't do that very often. It could be could even be kind of painful. So... We figured, number one, it was important to do it. So every single day, maybe twice a day, we would either talk from Russia and back, um, back and forth, or even do a video. And um, sometimes they would set up the iPad, and I would just watch them as they made breakfast or made dinner or just did their normal daily things. And I was just, my daughter remembers me as being this disembodied head <laughs> on a screen uh, for, for much of the time. But that was important because then we got into the habit. So when I was in space, it became much easier to have this regular conversation it wasn't tedious or difficult, but I kind of knew what was going on, so I wouldn't come back from space having to catch up. You know, there's a parenting principle there that can be generalized well outside of traveling, and that is if you get in the habit of communicating openly and honestly and regularly with your young children, when they are teenagers and they have teenager problems, they want to talk to you about it, which is was completely alien to me because as a teenager, I did not want to talk to my parents because we didn't have the right kind of relationship. But my teenagers have talked to me and, well, mostly talked to Sandra because she's better at this than I am. But, uh, Same here. But it is, because, yeah. it is because we developed good habits early on. Mm-hmm. Be careful with that, though, because I found that now I spend a lot of time talking to teenagers, and that's just kind of driving me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, um, I, I love what you're talking about with the Skype. Uh, two years ago, I was at a, a book festival in Washington, D.C. when my wife went into early labor with kid number six. And so all the pictures from the hospital are, 
you know, the wonderful mother with the brand new baby and then someone holding an iPhone <laughs> with my face. <laughs> Because I, I participated via FaceTime with that particular birth. Working dad is a deadbeat author. <laughs> Not quite as sexy. But uh, spaceflight gives you opportunities to fail that you wouldn't have otherwise. You know, in space you're floating, so if you're really, really tired, um, and while you're sitting down talking with someone, you can always just stand up and just wake your brain up. In space, you can't do that. You can't use gravity to help you stay alert. Uh, we would have an, sometimes an hour-and-a-half family conference happens every two weeks in space. End of a hard work week, and I'm tired, sitting there with, looking <laughs> at my, my wife, and she said, are you falling asleep on me? Because <laughs> my eyes would start to droop because I'm just, you know, you're floating. It's like you're resting, and I would just get really tired sometimes. So those kind of things can happen. Or my daughter's on the other end, and I'm trying to entertain her with some floating object or something, and she just gets distracted and just walks away. So that that would happen. There's a bowl of candy somewhere, and she went, "Oh, and that's yeah." You actually don't have to be an af- have, have to be an astronaut to yeah. have that experience. Yeah, your kids. yeah, yeah. But yeah. It, it is good to know that that you know. I think it's kind of reassuring that anything can become old hat. Absolutely, it's like it does yeah. not actually matter how cool your job is. You're you're still dad. You're still mom. In my case, I'm still aunt. Yeah. So uh, it 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 it. It doesn't. It doesn't matter, and to some degree, which is is reassuring and dismaying all at the same time. At Parker, our purpose is simple: we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more. Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's take a break for a book. Mary, I think you were going to pitch one to us. Yeah, this is a book that I am completely fascinated by. It's uh, called A Man on the Moon, The Voyages of the... Um, the the Voyages of the Apollo Astronauts, and it's by Andrew Chaikin. And Tom, you're actually the one who turned me on to this book, so um, you're, you're going to do a better summary of it than I will. Well, it's, it's a um, 
step-by-step history of all of the Apollo flights, not just the uh, you know, Apollo 11 or 13, obviously, get, get a lot of attention. In my mind, uh, spaceflight, well, I think it's certainly true, spaceflight is not easy. There's a lot that happens behind the scenes. This tells you what happened behind the scenes to the crew and, and what mission control had to solve. Um, so you, you get an appreciation for just how dangerous and difficult it is all of the time. And that's what I like about it. Yeah, it sounds amazing. So that's uh, A Man on the Moon, The Voyages of the Apollo Astronauts by Andrew Chaikin. Um, speaking of dangerous, was that a was that a, a concern when you were deciding to sign up for this? It's like, hmm, I'm going to, and I have family. Am I really going to let them strap me to this bomb and shoot me into airless space to do science? For a lot of astronauts, it's a life dream. So no. <laughs> um, <laughs> Having said that, when you're standing at the bottom of your rocket that you're going to launch on, there is a certain reality that hits you that has never hit you in any simulator before. Because mm. the rocket there might have condensation on the outside if there are hypergolic fluids, so ice sheets falling off. There's kind of uh, creaking and rumbling uh, before it. So it seems like a uh, like a living animal, and it's the size of a building that you're getting ready to climb into. Um, the thrill of the launch wipes all that away. Uh, for me, also in the airlock, getting ready to do my first spacewalk, when um, the realization that this is this is a dangerous, real thing hits you because you're in the airlock with your buddy, you're in your spacesuit, you've got these tools that weigh metal tools weigh five to fifteen pounds, they're banging around, you can hear them all clanging around with you, and then you, my job was to. Uh, Turn on the valve that pumps all the air out. And when the air goes away, all the sound goes away. So all you hear is your fan inside your spacesuit and your own voice talking. So you feel very alone. It's very eerie with all this other noise going away. And other than that, just from dull thumps as your your suit is moving around. Um, And in my mind, you know, the biggest fear is I don't want to mess up. But then you realize I'm getting ready to put my little pink body out there in the vacuum of space (laughs) And there's just only 250 miles between me and the, the Earth. Or what is actually more riveting is the infinite space uh, around you, and you could just let go and go flying off if you wanted to. Uh, all those things kind of, kind of all come in a way. Very quickly you get to work though, and, and your training takes over, and you kind of forget all that. So the training is really good in that regard. Yeah. So I, I have to ask because, uh, because I have to ask. Um, our eyes are able to compensate for, you know, rapid changes in light, and cameras aren't. And so many of the pictures we see of Earth's limb taken from the uh, space station don't have any stars in it. Um, When you are doing that and turning and, you know, you see the Earth and you are seeing space, do you get to see the stars? Do your eyes adjust quickly enough that all that blackness and all those millions of little pinpoints are there? So you can see the stars, you can see planets, but um, it's not a spectacular star view like the whole Milky Way for the very reason you just mentioned. Um, your eyes haven't adjusted. You only get about 45 or less than 45 minutes of dark for every orbit. You're going around the world every 90 minutes, so bright blazing sunlight, then boom, in, into darkness. What's striking about, the, the, uh, about space is stars don't twinkle. The planets yeah. look like little, little disks. Uh, but even on the bright side, the, since you can't see the stars or planets on the bright side, the sun is just flattening all, all out. The, the blackness of space, it's not a two-dimensional blackness. It's not like a painted wall or something. It's, it's a three-dimensional kind of almost liquid, palpable, dark blackness that 
I've as I still am downloading that view and and wow. trying to figure it out. I dreamed about it a lot during my flight and after my flight. Hmm. So I'm sitting here. I am taking notes. <laughs> yes, I'm like, yes. Uh, all of the <laughs> yeah. This is one of those questions. <laughs> this, is, this is one of those questions where, as I'm asking it, I'm thinking this might be a dumb question. Nope. Nope. <laughs> no, it's an awesome one. Do they? Yeah. Do they? Um, does Does mission control? Because I know that the these schedules are really. Do they actually build in time for you've stepped out of the airlock? We know that they're going to need a couple of seconds to just go, holy. <laughs> yeah, they do, actually. And mostly it's to um, allow you to get used to how to move your body because that's something that we have not been able to do in training. We train underwater. Right. And the viscosity of the water makes it hard to get moving and easy to slow down in space. It's the opposite. Oh. And so a little flick of your wrist and you can start to turn and then you have to stop yourself in space. So that's considered translational adaptation. We're given a few minutes to do that every time. Translational adaptation. Yeah. There's, there's nothing in the schedule that says five minutes of sense of wonder. No. Then move not. on. There's not. Come to terms with the smallness that, of your human existence. As a matter of fact, that's... 505 um, to 508. I did uh, three spacewalks on the shuttle flight, and I'm coming in on my last one. I was the last one in the hatch on, on that third one, and uh, I didn't want to come inside. And the Capcom, the, the voice of, of NASA from the ground said, all right, Tom, time to come in. And I just kept <laughs> looking at the view between my feet, and they said, time to come in. And uh, I wanted a career afterwards, so I came, I came inside. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had forgotten that you have done both the shuttle and Soyuz. Yes, launches, yeah. So, yeah. And, and landing, too? Yes, yes. Um, Highly recommend the Soyuz landing. <laughs> It, it has been described to me as um, as like driving off a cliff in a Volvo that's on fire. Yeah, or uh, two explosions followed by a car crash. Okay. Yeah, I've heard yeah. that as well. Um, um, that's, and that's fairly accurate? For the Soyuz, yeah, the Soyuz, not the shuttle. Yeah. Um, the shuttle was a, a very uh, soft landing. I wasn't even sure when we had touched ground. Wow. Because you came, it's a glider, and you yeah. glide in and, and uh, on this long strip in uh, Florida. Whereas the... Um, uh, Soyuz is very literally a 20-mile-an-hour car crash when the Earth rises up to, to hit you when you're under the parachute. But it's the parachutes when they release coming out from the atmosphere that is the, the wildest ride in space I've ever had. Because they come out, you're, you're twisting, you're spinning, you're, you're, the impact of the chute opening, you're feeling a lot of Gs all at the same time, and it's, it's just a riot. See, I get uncomfortable <laughs> during turbulence on an airplane <laughs> I suspect that that the Soyuz parachute deployment yeah. moment would just end me. It's it's what we call type two fun. Uh, if you've heard the, <laughs> no, I don't know. What I'm this writing is. okay. Yes. <laughs> so what type two fun means? What type one fun is? It's fun while you're doing it. Type two fun is it's fun after you've done it. Oh, and oh type dear. three fun is it's fun when it's happening to someone else. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I can totally. I have, I have experienced all of those. Yes. Yeah, I'm like. Yeah. The, the type two fun is much of my theater career. <laughs> so are there, are, are there back, back to the topic technically of the episode, we could talk about astronauts oh, right. all day Sorry. as far as I'm concerned. Um, are there things that you have learned to do as a parent that you think you probably only learned by virtue of being an astronaut? Value every second mm. with, with my child and my wife too, yeah. 
I mean, it's incredibly precious. It seems to go by faster, obviously, when you're gone. I come back after having you just even trained when they're little, you know, you've been training for two months and you come back home and it seems like almost another new person. I had that happen. Uh, I traveled a bit for work when I was in the IT industry and I would come home and realize my children have changed. Yeah. And I couldn't tell what, but I could tell that I was missing things. Yeah. And I think that was one of the best things about quitting the day job and working from home all the time is that I didn't miss right. anymore. But you missed huge chunks. Yep. And the uh, uh, one of my colleagues, who's a single guy, interestingly, made one of the best comments for me. When I started training uh, as an astronaut, my whole class and I would go into the simulators. They'd go out somewhere to, to celebrate a little bit. And I would get called out of my wife and my daughter was in daycare at the mm. space center and I'd get called out of the simulator to go get diapers for, for instance because they were out at the daycare and um, NASA supports families and they were like yeah Tom you got to go go do it so take off and so I felt like you know I'm, I'm not spending all the time in the simulators I want to I'm not going out with my classmates after work I'm going straight home and this uh, colleague of mine uh, who doesn't have any children he said who cares he said what you're doing is you're going to value that so much more yeah, and yeah. he was absolutely right yeah. For me. Well, I mean, I don't have, as, as I say, I have no children. I just have uh, nieces and, and nephew. And, and the the when they ask me to do something, I'm like, I don't want to do that thing. Um, but I, I will often do that thing. Although one of them at least is listening to it and say, you didn't play that game with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it is it is uh, one of the things I find interesting is the uh, the snapshots that you wind up getting and the 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 big jumps in growth, because I only see them a couple of times a year. And I remember when my niece went from, you know, my, my niece, who's, you know, a teenager, a young adult, to, oh, oh, she's an adult now. And it was just, for me, just like that. Um, and I, I suspect that her family may not have actually recognized that that transition has happened yet because they see her all the time. So I think... Um, we, we are again, probably we are again yeah. low on time. Gosh, I just want to keep. I know. <laughs> Tom I thought of like five different questions Get I wanted to ask. Another episode of we don't have enough time to talk to this astronaut. Yeah. Um, <laughs> writing prompt. We have had some really fun descriptions from Tom, and I want you to take a couple of these and come up with something. And the, the two things I want you to take are this 3D sense of space and the three types of fun. I don't know where you're going to go with it, but I hope that it ends up being type one fun for you. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them. 
And I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.